0: find some little factoids I learned over the course of doing these ruminations fascinating. Did you know this episode was about half done by Lisa Klink? I mean, you probably don't remember Lisa Klink, and I don't blame you if you don't. She's actually a Voyager writer and did most of her work over on Voyager. For some decent episodes and some not decent episodes. <laughs> but, um, I mean, for the most part, you know, she did some decent stuff. Um, let's see. Warlord was her. Um, Revulsion was her. Scientific method, eh. Message in a bottle, that was her. Retrospect. The Omega Directive, that was kind of a hit or miss, you know. So it's not like... (laughs) It's it's kind of a weird thing to comment on, because I'm also not mentioning some of the episodes she did, which I really don't care for, like Innocence or Sacred Ground. But I point that out anyways, uh, because... This feels, in many ways, like the kind of stuff I wish she had done more of over on Voyager. As I think I mentioned, she did do some good stuff over there. I mentioned she's only about half of this episode, because this is actually two episodes kind of slammed into each other. Um, one of which was going to be about the idea that O'Brien and she- Bashir were going to have a serious long-term disagreement with each other. And the other was going to be about the Jem'Hadar trying to be cured of the Enzyme, which in this episode we finally get a name for, Ketracel White. Now... You can see why these two ideas smash into each other very smoothly, actually. So this is actually really cool, and the way they present this is awesome. And I do kind of like the perspective of it, because this has the possibility for long-term ramification, the kind of thing that she wouldn't really get to do over on Voyager. You know, consequences, continuity, etc., etc. Biggest problem for me in this episode is the part that almost definitively was not written by her, the wharf B-plot. The Worf B-plot was really obvious and clearly shoehorned in. Now, to explain what I mean by that a little bit. Obviously, Worf, due to the nature of how television production works, even though they knew Worf was going to be on the show before they started filming Way of the Warrior which they started filming before they did the other episodes, they'd already started pre-production work, and most of the scripting had been done for most of those episodes. You know, as in... Because of the nature of television production, everything is being done in advance. I mean, I'm working on this episode right now in 2018, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. And that's just me. I just work alone in my own little studio here. But in actual television productions, they do all this stuff way in advance, in stages. So most of the scripts had already been accepted for season four, before the decision had been made to drag Worf into the show, remember that was something that was kind of pushed onto them more or less at the last minute. They were going to do the Earth plot instead. Now, that meant they were like, "Okay," so they did what they could to adjust scripts like this one to kind of slide Worf in there very quickly. But for the most part, he's—it's j- just kind of like, "Look how Worf is out of out of place." There's a reason that the B-plot in this episode takes up an almost a minuscule amount of screen time. It's because it was more or less just tossed in at the last minute. And that also probably contributes to why it feels rather weak, if I could just be completely blunt. I want to talk a little bit about pendulum effect just very briefly here. For those of you not aware, what I call pendulum effect, it's one of my older Loriums, which you can see on the website, Um <laughs> Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> the... Uh, I'm sorry, really quick. Some people, I, I find it amusing when some people say that I plug my website too much. There's no ads on the website. There's no products there. The website is there for information, and for help. I plug it because people seem to not still use it and be aware of its existence. Anyways. Pendulum effect is when a lot of people are, basically when you're pushed towards something... So you automatically push away from it. And so it just kind of does this. When, whichever direction it's pushed in, gravity or nat- nature, whatever you want to call it, naturally pushes it the other way. Pendulum effect. I mention this because one of the things I've gotten an extremely strong impression from, specifically from two individuals, Ira Stephen Bear and Michael Moore. Uh, or Michael Moore. Wow, Ronald D. Moore. Sorry. Wrong person. Ronald D. E. Moore, is the idea that they both were pushed so far one way when they were working on TNG. In fact, if you remember, uh, Iris Stevenberg actually left working on TNG because of how much this you know, upset him. That they pushed as hard as they could in the other direction. Now, it's hard to argue with the results. DS9 is amazing. But every time I see a behind-the-scenes discussion or a chat or a transcript or an interview or anything like that from these guys... It's constantly about how they wanted to be as not TNG as possible. Now, I find that very interesting since, I I mean, first of all, I love TNG. But second of all, I'm not one of those people who thinks DS9 is not Star Trek. If you don't know what I mean, there are several people who think DS9 is simply anti-Trek. And I am not one of those people. While DS9 can be a dark story, and indeed is dark Star Trek, it's still Star Trek. A lot of the core tenets are still there. The core ideals of optimism and cooperation and mutual assurance and respect and tolerance and understanding, and the fact that things can get better, the idea that all of this is for a reason, or all of this is to purpose, or that it's not in vain, to me, that is the core of what Star Trek really is, plus heavy character focus. And DS9 is that in spades. So I always find it funny that they talk constantly about how they wanted to push as hard of, as far, as far away from TNG as they could, given the fact that it's so very Trek at its core. I don't know why that is exactly. It's just something that I've been noticing more and more as I've been reading these interviews and seeing these transcripts and, you know, all that fun stuff from both characters, or excuse me, from both people, characters. Sorry guys, this is all a holodeck simulation. I'm actually just another aspect of control over the Matrix. Whatever. So, Worf, of course, is having trouble fitting in. Of course he is. It's very stereotypical. I have very little to say about it. I do like the idea that he's so accustomed to the way Starfleet does things, which, let's be honest, Starfleet does tend to be a little rigid in how it operates. And DS9 tends to be not. That's probably because it's not a Federation station, right? That's been established many times back in Season 1 and in Season 2. This is, in fact, a Bajoran station which Starfleet helps to run. So there's a lot of blurring, a lot of gray, keeping in mind as well that Bajor is not a part of the Federation. So this is not Starfleet or Federation territory as well. So it kind of makes sense that this is more of a gray area. In fact, Sisko himself flat out uses that phrase when discussing this stuff with Worf. Now... I do like the idea of Warf being strategic operations officer, whatever specifically they call him, because the way it's described is the kind of thing that makes perfect sense. It's the kind of person who basically has no real authority, other than the fact that he's got the pips on his collar. But he has the task of making sure that all Starfleet assets within the entire sector are all well aware of what each other's doing and are coordinating properly. If that doesn't sound like a hell job, you've never had to try and coordinate multiple groups across a large distance. I've had to do that more than once in my life as part of my business back in the day, uh, as part of uh, engineering projects, and oh my god, that can get fun. And of course, I think Worf would be very good at that, especially since he does have some rank in order to be able to pull it when necessary. It does make me wonder what else Starfleet has in this sector, since, as we've shown and as I've complained about time and time again, they don't seem to have any other assets on site other than the Defiant, but whatever. I kind of like the idea that he's technically in charge of the Defiant, though. He's not. Obviously, Cisco's the captain. But I like the idea that Sisko, it's Cisco's ship, but like 90% of the time, Worf's the one in charge of that. That's always a perspective I've enjoyed there, because it kind of makes sense to me. Anywho, hmm. so the Klingons are looking for more conquests. Duh. I kind of already m- m- mentioned the idea of the you know Imperial Drive that I talked about back in uh, Way of the Warrior. But what I find weird is that they're aiming specifically for weak systems. I don't know. That actually doesn't strike me as very Klingon in terms of real Klingon or fake Klingon, so I'm not sure what's up with that. I, I don't have much else to add to that other than the fact that that kind of bothered me for some reason, because the Klingons would strike me more as the kind who would look at a nearby system and say, okay, how much are they resisting? Oh, they're resisting a lot. Go! Okay, we got a new system. Okay, here's a new system. They're not resisting much. Ugh. Whatever. Send some dishonored patok to go take care of that system. Moving on. Anyways. And Odo, well, naturally Odo's on top of things. This is so obvious, I cannot believe Worf, with all his security experience, didn't really realize what was happening here. The fact that Odo clearly didn't want to tell him about what was going on. The fact that Odo clearly knew what was going on. The fact that Quark was just ready to go ahead and make this transaction. I mean, come on, Worf, put two and two together. This is obviously a reverse sting. He's trying to find out more of his sources and more of his insight and how he got it out. You'll notice one of the first questions Quark asks is, how'd you get it out? Because if he had just answered the question right then and there, which he probably wouldn't, well, that would have been pretty much the end of the need for continuing the investigation. But instead, they just make the transaction and Worf ruins everything. Way to go, Worf. Funnily enough, later on, Odo and Worf will quarrel over other similar aspects of security. And that's all I have to say about that for now. Again, it's just kind of there because, hey, Worf's on the show now. Um, uh, have him go after Quark. There we go. Okay, we're good. There's a really great scene. I've already given huge praise to the getting drunk scene back in... Uh, oh, gosh, I don't remember which episode that was, actually. It was a few episodes ago, towards the end of Season 3. Very good scene between O'Brien and Bashir. This episode actually has the first crack in their relationship. Unfortunately, by memory, I don't remember that crack as being particularly significant. But it'd be nice if it was, because, well, like he says, you know, I'm not really in the mood for darts either, maybe in a few days. Obviously, this stung on both sides. It really did. And And notice that both actors make it clear that this is the kind of thing that really bothers their characters we'll see going through if it has any kind of lasting impact whatsoever i mean maybe they do pull a voyager here (laughs) but i bring this up because there's this great scene at the beginning of the episode where o'brien is talking about you know the keiko problem and bashir's like well (laughs) that's ridiculous she actually thinks you're trying to push her away if anything the fact that you're associating this with something that you associate with her shows how much you care it's very touching really now, I can't tell based on Alexander Siddig's performance if he's actually, like, like, if, if that is intended to be what Bashir really means or not. But whether it's what he really means or not, it's very clear that that is what O'Brien meant. Because the way O'Brien immediately responds is, of course! God, that's exactly right! At least someone understands! I, I kind of wish that she was, well, she was a man. <laughs> now, of course, I don't want to get into gender stuff because this is 2019 and I already have a headache right now. But all I have to say is that I do have to admit every now and again in my life, I've kind of wished, why don't you just understand to a girlfriend in whatever particular era in my life, right? Like, why don't you just get it? <laughs> Look, I'm trying to explain it to you. Of course, I'm explaining it terribly because I have no idea how to explain things. That's, that's why I talk for hours and hours on this show, after all. So I kind of sympathize with O'Brien there and with Bashir. And then they crash, and then the Jem'Hadar get them. 5 minutes, 44 seconds teaser. You can kind of see how the TNG era of teaser approach was still bleeding over into DS9 well after TNG had, had, had come and gone. In fact, it wouldn't really be until like mid to late Voyager when they started really experimenting with the very quick teasers. I know they had a few earlier than that, and TNG and DS9 both had a few earlier than that. But for the most part, the, the average teaser length, like I said, is in the 3 to 5 minute range. That's pretty normal. So there's the Hadar okay. And so then they say, okay, so what we should do is we should kill him. We should use him for target practice. Nice folk, these gem are. I-, I can see why they're so popular at parties. So they say no. Uh, Garanagar specifically says no. And we find out the name of Ketrasel White, like I mentioned earlier. We found out about the idea of cure, the fact that a cure can exist. We also kind of learn how the Jem'Hadar think a little bit. It's another insight into the Jem'Hadar. they still see situations in, well, basically in the mundane sense. I'm going to kind of skip over a lot of chunks of the episode because I don't have many specific things to say, but rather I want to comment on things about the pragmatism and the concept of the innate, the, the nature versus the nurture. At several points throughout the episode, the Jem'Hadar and Garanagar in particular make comments that make it clear that they believe that anything that any sentient sapient being does or has is something that they were trained to do, something that was built into them or something that, or excuse me, something that they were built, I'm saying this wrong, something that they were trained to do or something that they became acclimated to do. In other words, the, the, the general idea of not believing in the very concept of a nature Now, I point that out because that itself is interesting given the constructed nature of the Jem'Hadar and how they seek to fight and kill as more or less a baseline default. And yet we see that they do have opinions and perspectives on things, even the the Jem'Hadar who are not Garanagar. And Garanagar himself has his own opinions. This is the first time we really learn about the nature of the Founders, the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar. Now, I've been talking about this before, but this makes it very clear that 99% of the time the Founders don't even show up. They don't bother. Why would they? The Vorta keep things running just fine. Remember, the very definition of a standard fictional empire is the collection of resources and personnel and the control of territories for the uplifting of a specific body, whether it's a species, an organization, an elite, you know, whatever. And that is the Dominion in a nutshell. All that they do, all that they have, is all for only one purpose, to make sure that the Founders are on top of the heap safe and in control and thus the Vorta all the day-to-day management all the imperial business of of trade routes and disputes and resource allocation none of that matters to the founders they don't care how the machine runs they just care that it keeps running thus if we were to use a weird analogy here the Vorta are basically middle management the Jem'Hadar are the actual mechanics and the founders are big fat and smoking a cigar while tugging on their suits. So, we learn a lot about the specifics of this in this one. And it's an interesting perspective. It's also nice to see... Up until now, the Jem'Hadar have only been focused on the mundane or the tangible. Now, I've talked many times, across many aspects of my show, about the difference between the tangible and the intangible. And how... Well, to put it as simply and bluntly as possible, any animal can understand and comprehend the tangible but only a sentient, sapient being can understand and comprehend the intangible. Concepts of enjoyment, concepts of social interaction, concepts uh, like honor and duty are things that are intangible concepts. Uh, Respect, decency, uh, civilization, all of these things are intangibles. They might have a tangible effect, but the concepts themselves are not. The Jem'Hadar are so pragmatic, for the most part, that they don't even think of the intangible. They in only think about what can be used here now. It's a nice way to vary them up from several other warrior races we've seen throughout the course of fiction, including Star Trek in particular. It's also then a nice way to have Garanagar have his own development as he starts to be the very beginning grasping of concepts like the intangible. Now, I say that Jem'Hadar in general don't have a grasp of the intangible. There is actually one huge exception to that, and it is their sense of Unit cohesion is probably the best way I could put that. We see that in this episode, and that will be a recurring trend in the future. Um, He has this wonderful line where he turns to O'Brien, he says, You're a soldier? O'Brien says, I was. Then you explain, and then he just leaves. There is no tangible benefit for him staying behind, but as we see in the future, the Jem'Hadar care a great deal about their unit, their soldiers, their commanders. And just about all of the good Jem'Hadar commanders we encounter across the series, especially going forward, will have that same intangible care about their unit. So you can kind of see the beginnings of that. That's probably why the Cell White is there, for being honest. Because despite their programming, despite the the built-in nature of their existence, there's a pretty good chance that given enough time, and remember, the founders think in terms of millennia, Given enough time, the Jem'Hara would eventually break free of this and decide to revolt or want their own rights or, or God, heaven forbid, actually wanting representation in their own government. And that just can't be. So they just, anytime there's any beginnings of anything, well, cut off the white, they're dead, moving on. Just think of it like a bush. And you see there's a couple of leaves over here that are starting to rot a little bit. So you pull out your clippers and you just chop the stem there and then those leaves are no longer a problem. Now, that sounds horrible, and I'd mean it to sound horrible, because that is exactly what all of these lives, these sentient, sapient lives are to the Founders. Leaves on a bush that they are trimming. Possibly less than that, depending on how you define it. Anywho, you could also say that the Vorta see it that way, because, again, the Vorta are the ones who usually do the specifics of that. I'm looking at my notes here. I've kind of, I feel like I've actually covered everything. There's this one really interesting argument. Obviously, Bashir predominantly is choosing what he chooses to do because of moral imperative. He wants to help these people to be free from being slaves. He wants to free the slaves. That's such an incredibly understandable objective that it's so easy to see why just about everyone involved would want to take Bashir's side in this. In fact, when I was watching this, when this episode first came out, literally none of my friends or family who was watching this took O'Brien's side. Except me. Now, don't mistake me. I'm extremely anti-slavery. But it was O'Brien who brought up one of the ideas that I myself was having. Okay, we have freed the Jem'Hadar, but they aren't like other species. This isn't a case of, you know, a, a, a otherwise normal, I hate to use that word, you know. It's, it's a good word. It's a good word, because there is kind of a galactic normal, right? There is like an accepted norm as far as culture and society and civilization in Star Trek. And the Jem'Hadar are not in that circle. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but they aren't in it, which means if we free the Jem'Hadar... We don't know what they're going to do. We can't even predict that. In fact, it's pretty likely that all the Jem'Hadar would not do the same thing. How many fictional settings can you think off the top of your head that have default bad guys? Or regular issues? Bandits? Zombies? Orcs? Stormtroopers? Nazis? You know what I'm talking about. And Fallout, the Raiders, Right? Most uh, large-scale forex games have, like, barbarians or raiders or pirates, right? How easy would it be to picture the Jem'Hadar becoming a marauding force? I can picture them doing something, at least some sects of them, doing things like the Herosian, and just wandering around fighting because that's what they like to do. We've already established this more than once. So... Now that they're free to do whatever they want, they can just go fight without consequence or without orders. Just, hey, that looks like a good fight. So you can kind of see how this is a far trickier situation. I'm not saying we shouldn't free the Jem'Hadar, quite the contrary. I'm fully in favor of the idea. I'm more in favor of the idea of far more carefully and precisely freeing the Jem'Hadar, rather than one day just cutting the cord and seeing what happens. Funnily enough, uh, we never do frame the Jem'Hadar, even in the STO era. Although you could argue about that left or right, depending on how you think of that the events in STO. I'm not going to spoil STO here. So, Garanagar helps them escape. It's, it's actually a pretty good scene. And again, you're a soldier, you explain. And so the two of them are sitting there. And I, all I can think of is Section 31. Hear me out. Because... What we have seen is that Bashir allowed his idealism to override all of the rest of him. Now, that's part of Bashir as a character. Even after, you know what, we, we do still see that is still an aspect of Bashir as a person. He is an idealist almost to a fault. He believes so firmly in, in the concepts of, of things going right, and people being better, and always helping, and all that fun stuff. And that's a good thing. People like that should exist. But reality isn't usually quite that accommodating. Reality, unfortunately, needs people like O'Brien. People who see the pragmatic reality and say, no, we need to go now, and gets Bashir out of there. O'Brien even admits, you can still bring me up on charges on this if you would like to, for disobeying a direct order. Bashir, of course, says no. But I like this because, again, this reminds me of Section 31 and everything that will happen with them in the future, the very idea of the fact that, well, to be 100% blunt, a wonderful, beautific utopia like the Federation needs people like O'Brien. That's just reality. And unfortunately, that is believable storytelling. It's an unfortunate truth, but it still is a truth. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts in on this one, guys. I'll see you next time.